I mean, uh, pretty informal, but I, I re-listened to the episode we did last week about marginal stupidity. And mm-hmm, I, was, mm-hmm. I was talking to my partner about it. And mm-hmm, she was mm-hmm. like, so Danny's making a case for liberal arts education. Yes, that's true. Is that true? Yes. yes. <laughs> well, I mean, this is the argument for critical thinking, liberal arts education, for the humanities, for consilience, uh, which is you want to you want to have this ability to bring in all these different types of knowledge streams, all these different forms of knowledge, yeah. be able to synthesize it together. And, and you don't synthesize in science and you don't really synthesize in engineering. You know, yeah. in, in the sciences and engineering in STEM, you, you have skills and you use those skills to produce either new research or produce a piece of software or a new chip. And you have to think critically within that little domain and context, right? You know everything about the molecular structure of silicon in order to produce a chip. But understanding the broader world, the economy, how the world's going to function, how businesses, organizations, politics, all these things come together, like you have to have a much wider aperture to understand that. And that's, I, I think, exactly where the humanities come in. I was like, oh my God, Danny actually validated my education. Like I, I went and did a bunch <laughs> of things that seemed like yes. it was worthless and it, it fed into my job every day, actually. Well, and this is like the classic Steve Jobs uh, anecdote about uh, taking uh, topography at uh, Reed College, which was like, well, why do you need to take topography? And, and then you actually built the Mac and you were building fonts and suddenly you're like, well, we're going to have amazing topography. In right. the Mac, which is still true to this day in 2022 and OS 10. Moving on to a completely different subject. So, okay, so we 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 just did this event with Roger Perlmutter, who runs Icon, which is one of the companies we are invested in. He gave a really big talk, very inspirational. But there was this one piece that stood out to me that I wanted to ask you about, which and maybe you have an idea of it, maybe you don't. I just wanted to see. But Josh and Roger said that we actually have no idea how aspirin works. And that was brand new to me. Did you know that? Do you have any insight into that? Um, I don't know if I can say anything specifically about aspirin. I can tell you that we don't understand how most medicines work. So that's probably a much more generalized comment. Okay. Uh, I mean, you know, the the body is extraordinarily complex, right? I, I think every... Every decade in the modern last couple of decades, we've always had this belief that we're, we're just this close to understanding everything going on. We have the Human Genome Project, and then we're going to finish that. I think we even did an episode on, on securities about that of, okay, we've sequenced the genome. Now we're going to know everything. And then we were like, oh, shit, you know, there's epigenetics. Genes regulate genes. And suddenly you were like, well, there's a whole nother layer to understand what's going on here that we're just uh, just in a recent newsletter where I was just talking about epigenetic therapy instead of genetic therapy. Well, uh, you know, gene therapy has been in the discussion for what, 20, 30, 40 years. Well, now it's epigenetic therapy, which is to say, well, what if we don't change the genes themselves with CRISPR, but we just exchange the uh, expression of those genes in a certain way so that it doesn't get expressed, even though we're not cutting it out. Now, scientists are starting to understand that the epigenetic layer, epigenes actually affect epigenes, if you will. So, so the regulation, you know, and, and there's all, like all biological systems, there's feedback loops. So, you know, as you express one gene, it affects the expression of other genes and it's part of a system. So, you know, when we look at drugs, oftentimes we don't have any clue the mechanism of how it actually functions. We oftentimes can figure out the pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics, which means how the drug gets processed in the body. So oftentimes it's processed by, let's say, the liver. And therefore we know if you pop this pill... It'll last about 24 hours, and then it'll be kind of expunged out of your system, and you're going to pee it out, basically. 
but but you know we outside of sort of the graph we don't really understand the mechanism and and particularly in areas and i'm thinking particularly neurology uh like we think most uh, psychiatric drugs most mental health related pharmaceuticals which obviously have been in the news a lot in the last couple of mo- uh, weeks and months we have no idea how they work none none i remember an interview from the former chair of psychiatry at stanford hospital who was like you know a lot of these drugs in like 100 years from now will be known as like the bloodletting right the leeches it was like because like... that's how little we actually know how any of this stuff works we're just throwing things at your brain and we kind of vaguely have a sense that this helps or this helps and that that actually descends back to very basic drugs like we don't have a model for pain we don't know why pain comes unless it's like acute like you have a, a a nerve pinched in your spine and therefore we know like there's this pinch the nerve is getting cut off and if we unpinch it the pain goes away that's a pretty clear model of how the pain works but a lot of pain is not like that if you have any kind of focal headaches if you have a migraine we have no idea what a migraine is you know look i love wine as you know yeah and so <laughs> I, every once in a while i get a hangover randomly and i'm like well why did i get a hangover i'm going to look on the internet we must yeah. two thousand years of drinking <laughs> thousands of years of drinking alcohol we must know how ethyl alcohol affects the brain we got nothing we have not the slightest clue that it, it's like the most you'll get is maybe if you drink some water yeah. It's kind of dehydration correlated, but it's not. You can drink a lot of water and still have a hangover. We have no idea what triggers it. We don't know what like actual part of the brain is causing this hangover at all. We have some lights that show up in the fMRI, and that's about it. And I, I think you'd be shocked at how much doctors learn and they know nothing, which actually is sort of like, I don't want to say it's a martial stupidity, but it is just a reminder of how complex our bodies are, how important it is to listen to them, et cetera. Awesome. Okay. Uh, one last, one last piece. And this is, comes from the space episode. So we we interviewed two founders who are working in the space sector and they had worked together previously at SpaceX. And one thing that stood out to me from that conversation was that at SpaceX, that there was a, a, a no acronym rule and that just acronyms weren't allowed. And that, was interesting to me. Well, one, because acronyms for me, it's like, okay, this is a way that you abbreviate complex terms or complex ideas and synthesize them into a way that you can kind of abbreviate and talk to people quickly about stuff. But to hear that it actually decrease understanding. Well, I think we were talking in a recent newsletter about fake analogies and technology. Right. And, you know, sort of a a fake analogy is an abbreviation, which is a simplified form of a much more complex phrase. Yeah. Uh, And and there's research, at least I've seen research that shows that people have no idea what most abbreviations mean because the abbreviation becomes the term. And so you forget that there's these languages. Okay, LOL. Mm -hmm. We all kind of know what LOL is. That's a fine abbreviation. There's nothing wrong with it. The real problem begins when you start going into business terms and you're doing manufacturing and you're like, well, let's break the, the DBD2 system into the RS6. And no one has any idea what that means because they start to lose track because those phrases become more and more diverged and, and divorced from the original meaning of the phrases they represent. And so I, I think what you find is, look, if there were just a couple of acronyms, you're not going to have a problem. But mm-hmm. acronyms tend to beget al- acronyms. And, and particularly, as anyone who's ever interacted with the Pentagon knows, I mean, you get these alphabet soups where on a slide, there might be 30 or 40 acronyms. And, and you're now talking essentially a different foreign language. And no one, this is a classic problem in organizational theory, people would rather be silent than to raise their hand and prove that they don't know what something means. 
And so a lot of these acronyms, as you get into larger groups and as, as think about, you know, you're in a manufacturing line, but your marketer comes in, the marketer has no idea what they're doing, but they don't want to make it look like they don't know what they're doing. And so classic organizational theory says, you know, they're just going to pretend and aha, uh-huh, nod their head. They're just going to keep on going. And as you grow, you end up finding that no one knows what the acronym means. You might actually get to a point as a proportion of your corporate population where the majority of people have no idea what the acronyms mean. And so there are some classic case studies. And I, I want to say uh, it was IBM in the 80s. That's what's in my head. It may yeah, not yeah. have literally been. Uh, or GE or Qualcomm, one of these sort of uh, more venerable tech companies that created a policy that said you cannot use an acronym ever. Okay. And therefore, what that did was it did two things. One is you didn't have that sort of elision of, of complexity of these terms. And second, you had to get better at naming things. You couldn't just name things, these big, long phrases, because you had to write them out. And so it actually forced people to say, well, what should we actually call this thing? You know, instead of the, you know, super duper hyperactive computer system, you know, it's Watson. Right. And, and now it's a brand name and you could argue that that's a sort of abbreviation, but now we're actually talking about it. It's actually an object. It's a brand. It's something that's uh, uh, tenable for a human to understand. Um, and that makes it, I think, a lot easier to communicate. Okay. Moving on to our next one, which is, can we talk about this Google researcher who believes the AI he's working on is conscious? It was all over my Twitter feed. I, so go, go. it went supernova viral. And it, it, it's just one of those. So there was a, a software engineer at Google who basically started interacting with a, a, a model there called Lambda AI. And as this person was sort of conversing with the AI, prompting it, getting a response back, came to believe that it was sentient and, and both triggered an right. internal conversation around the sentience of this AI and then uh, was fired because they started leaking screenshots of these conversations, supposedly to reporters and outside of the, the walls of Google, and that's sensitive to Google. Um, and so that triggered a whole conversation of, okay, was this actually true? I think the, the universal answer from artificial intelligence experts and philosophers was no. Was no. Yeah, definitely was no. not. No one thought it was <laughs> sentient. But it gets at this, this challenge around analogies of like, well, sentience is, as I described it in the newsletter this last week, was, you know, duck typing. You know, if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, it is a duck. Well, if it talks like a human, it's texting back with you as a human, then it's a human. Ironically, humans don't respond right away to your prompts. Like, that's all part of the game. Like, that's automatically a sign of not sentience because no one responds that quickly. Some people call it just bullshit. I just call it weak analogy making. It, it, it's actually trying to simplify complex topics yeah. in a way that doesn't actually give you good uh, affordances on what is actually happening in that complexity. You know, the best analogy should be able to summarize something, but still give you a sense of the complexity behind the analogy. And in most cases, we just obfuscate the details to a point that I think a lot of folks who invest in these companies didn't know what they were investing in. So this time you are now arguing that we are oversimplifying. Last week it was overcomplicating. This week it's oversimplifying. <laughs> well, you know, there are two sides of the same coin, right? Which is in order to effectively predict the future, in order to take effective risks, you have to precisely get the right model in your head, right? You right. can't be overcomplicated. You can't be undercomplicated. You have to be, you know, the Goldilocks principle. You have to have just the right amount of detail where it doesn't overwhelm you, but it has enough detail that you don't make mistakes, right? Theranos, right. It, just to go to a canonical example, was an example where investors invested in this concept, this analogy of prick your finger and I'm going to be able to test everything, which belies medicine, statistics, uh, the fact that your blood is not homogenous, so that the blood in your capillaries and your fingers is not the same as the blood that's coming out of your heart. 
the kinds of chemicals and biomarkers that are going to be different in different parts of your body. And so it, we, we kind of uh, eluded out all the complexity of the human body in that analogy. And so it didn't work. You know, and then there's the fraud piece. But the analogy failed. Now, yeah. if I were to give you a multi-hundred page study about how complex blood is, that is also not helpful. That is overcomplicated. <laughs> we would never invest no in anything. Yeah. That no one will ever read it. No one will ever make an investment. So there is a Goldilocks principle of you want to be just balanced between too complex uh, and not too simple. All right, so let's move on to an extremely complex topic, which is China. No, but uh, th there is a major story going on. So, yeah. so Congress has been working on this monster bill over the last two years, basically since Biden came into office in January 2021. The focus has been on, I would call it just industrial policy for the United States, which is how does the United States compete in a, a variety of frontier technologies, so semiconductors, quantum computing, yeah. biotech, fintech, the list goes on. Um, and there have been a lot of proposals. So um, the House has passed its version. The Senate has passed a different version. In many ways, they don't even overlap. They're in totally different worlds. So I believe the House version is trying to reform the National Science Foundation. The Senate has been trying to uh, increase subsidies to the chips industry. And so there is now a master bill that's going through with representatives and senators all kind of coming together from both sides around a kind of comprehensive bill that would sort of solve the basic science research institutions, stuff that, you know, Sam Irishman talks about, our oh, scientists yeah. and resident talks a lot about, that would also provide subsidies for semiconductor fabrication in the United States, and then a whole litany of other things. Part of that discussion mm -hmm. is about foreign, U.S. investors investing in foreign nations, and uh, particularly in foreign adversaries like China. Okay. So in the United States today, under what's known as CFIUS, the Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States, the United States sort of blocks the acquisition of American companies by some foreign countries. So when a Chinese company wants to buy an American company, that has to go through review. And those reviews were strengthened in 2018 with a new law that was passed by Congress and signed into law. Um, and so it's gotten much harder for Chinese companies and basically any foreign com company to buy an American business. Um, if you want to buy equity, it's harder. If you want to just buy it out of whole, it's actually particularly hard. And, and that is uh, extremely true within what is known as critical technology. So if a British company wants to buy a semiconductor business, an American semiconductor business, that would have to go through review. It has to go through the Treasury, the Justice Department, um, and several other agencies in order to get approval. Obviously, it's probably easier if you're British than if you're Chinese because right. of sensitivities. But that's not to say it's not reviewed. What's new with, with Congress's debate going on right now on Capitol Hill is we would actually prevent American venture capitalists from investing overseas. So for instance, Sand Hill Road would no longer, or, or maybe not would no longer, would not be banned, but would have to go through a view to invest in any particularly Chinese company. So, so what's your concern with if this bill passes? The most important thing is that you want to build up the dynamism and, and strength of the U.S. startup ecosystem. That, to yep. me, is goal number one. That, that is the most oh. important thing. That's what we all want to kind of align around. And so the, the most important criteria for strong startup ecosystem, in my view, is exits. The ability mm -hmm. to make money while building a startup. Um, it's great that some folks will do cash flow businesses or people who will bootstrap. There are other ways besides the you know, high-scale, high-growth venture capital model of growing startups. And we have to acknowledge that, but that's not how you build a massive startup innovation ecosystem. And so when you get exits, big numbers, billions of dollars of, of uh, dollars an IPO or an M&A, that attracts founders, that attracts talent, that attracts LP capital, that attracts good venture capitalists out of other industries where they could probably make money in hedge funds or whatever the case may be, and instead they're investing in American innovation. And so as 
other alternatives to acquisitions M&A get blocked as VCs are no longer able to invest in certain markets, we diminish the exit value of a lot of these companies. You mm-hmm. know, take a semiconductor business in the United States, let's say Intel and AMD, the US companies are poking around and saying, we want to buy it. And a Chinese company shows up and they're like, we really, really want to buy it. We're going to buy it at a higher price. You could still sell to Intel, but because the Chinese buyer is in the market for that particular company, it drives the price higher and therefore the exit value is worth more, even though it's not being sold to that company. It's just increasing the number of bidders. And the more bidders there are, you know, by definition of markets, the price should go up because there's more demand for the company. You know, I, I think what you're seeing over the last couple of years is there's been law after law that's restricted the number of buyers, that has restricted the amount of venture capital going into these industries. And that just means that it's getting harder and harder in the toughest industries to build startups to grow. And isn't China doing something similar? Aren't they contracting as well? Yeah. I mean, so in, in the Chinese case, and it, it, in some ways, there's a weird harmony or parallel process in which both com- countries are sort of cutting back on the startup ecosystem. In, in the Chinese case, there's a, a deliberate program called Common Prosperity to mm-hmm. attempt to reduce some of the inequalities in the current Chinese economy. So to take some money from the big tech winners, namely Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, and others, and sort of redistribute that wealth to across the country, as well as reduce its power vis-a-vis the Communist Party of China. Yeah, well, I remember when they canceled the Ant IPO, and that was such a huge deal. That's right. And as I'm recording this, uh, it looks like the Financial Supervisory Board at China has just accepted their uh, request to become a holding company, which is the next block on their IPO. So it's actually, (laughs) as we're recording this, uh, probably a few days before we publish, uh, it seems like it's a little bit back on track a year or two later. So it's coming. But yes, Ant, which would have been one of the largest IPOs, I think, if not... It would have been, I think, the second largest IPO after um, Saudi Aramco. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. It would be the largest in tech, I believe. Yeah. But Saudi Aramco's IPO at a couple of trillion dollars because it's a large oil company. There's a lot of oil in Saudi Arabia uh, would have been the all-time high. So one of the strongest IPOs pulled back was a huge shock to a lot of folks. Obviously, Jack Ma got uh, kind of pulled out of the yep. public eye for a long period of time and sort of quietly disappeared or made himself unavailable and hard to see. But that just gets to the point of, look, both countries, which have extremely dynamic, competitive startup ecosystems, are just putting more and more constraints and, and rules and bureaucracy in place. And to me, like, you know, obviously we need to be competitive. We want to uh, beat China. We want to have stronger companies. Restricting access to capital is mm-hmm. not a good way to do that. My perception of what's happening in China, which it, you kind of contradicted in your piece, was my view was China's constriction and redistribution was actually stifling innovation. So mm-hmm. if somebody were to ask me, like, what are your thoughts on startups and, and innovation in China? I would say that the Chinese government has made it a really inhospitable place to build a company, shutting down all of their ed tech. But in, in your article, I've, I felt like you were arguing kind of the opposite, that they are actually creating a more rich environment to start a company than potentially the U.S. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, both countries have put in place restrictions that harm the long-term value of startups. Now, China yeah. has actually done far more in the last two years with common prosperity, with knocking out the ed tech industry, with massively peeling back uh, social media uh, and a lot of other industries where, you know, ed tech alone in China was a multi-tens of billions dollar industry, and it's gone. Yeah. It's disappeared. Gone. It's gone. 
And so, you know, in a policy environment where you're like, I'm going to spend five to 10 years, put a billion dollars of capital to work to go build this business. And then one day it disappears. Like who wants to go and build a business when it can just be taken away from you, when it can just be shut offline? It's one thing if you're in, in the United States, like cannabis, where it's still a, a legal market, and you sort of know the risk going in that you're taking this bet that it's going to get legalized at the federal level in the next couple of years it makes sense. Yeah. Um, the U.S. is obviously not putting those kinds of clamps in the same way down. But look, you're seeing proposals like uh, the upgrade of CFIUS, uh, uh, an investment coming into the United States, this new proposal on Capitol Hill that will prevent VCs from going out. And not just venture capital, it'll also prevent partnerships, sales, anything mm -hmm. that might involve any kind of technology transfer externally to the United States could potentially be under the purview. So you might harm revenue growth. You might prevent uh, joint ventures that are actually quite valuable. And then on top of that, you know, we have had proposals to tax unrealized capital gains, right. um, which is a popular proposal swirling around Capitol Hill, but would massively have an effect on VC and other sort of long-term asset classes. And so to me, like there's just this inhospitable environment that's getting crafted by DC. And look, China's a huge threat. You know, it's yeah. grown massively. It is competitive. Um, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken just gave a major policy address on China two weeks or so ago at George Washington University. You know, China is the only country in the world that is uniquely situated to threaten U.S. hegemony anywhere in the world across all domains, you know, economic, right. social, cultural, political, international relations, et cetera. So there has to be a response to that. But you don't want to make it a bogeyman response where you're like, everything we need to change, everything we do right in order to sort of defeat this. Because I think what has always made America strong is its open markets, its competitive free markets, and allowing entrepreneurs to build the best businesses they can. And so long as we're open to that and people are able to come here, they're going to continue to centralize because of the dense talent networks and the venture capital and the flexibility and open regulations that, again, like you build a business in China, it's taken away from you. It doesn't happen in the United States. But we're seeming to walk that path. And it's a path that's designed to counter what we're seeing overseas. And in some ways, you have to have the fortitude and the strength to say, you know, the United States has a good model. It works. Uh, maybe there's some stuff on the fringes you can cut off. But like, look at the success we've had for decades in our innovation ecosystem. We can't waste that.